Good morning, brothers and sisters. Visit, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're really thankful you're here. And uh, if you're looking for a church home, this is a good place. And by God's grace, we're getting better all the time. So uh, sometimes certain things happen within our midst that it's good to mark and celebrate. And we have one of those occasions this morning. We get to celebrate with the Oakley family. Our sister Sylvia has now become a U.S. citizen. Will you give a round of applause? We have some other happenings as well. Uh, If you are a younger couple, um, we'll say my age or younger, I just want to be on the cusp of young yet, somehow. That uh, We're going to have a meeting tonight starting at 5 o'clock at our house, and I think that's in the bulletin. Well, we're going to jump right in. We're making some good progress through the Gospel of John, and uh, uh, we're kind of getting almost to the midpoint here. And as we look through John, the first half of the book is dominated with uh, major signs that Jesus performs. He doesn't call them miracles. We know that he calls them signs. And I like that because a sign points to something. It has a meaning bigger than just the event itself to wow us. It causes us to ask that question, why is this significant and why is it important? A sign tries to move us to realize something. And there's also seven major discourses, and we're working our way through those. So just kind of for your information, this is some, there are some ideas about how the signs and how the discourses are supposed to be laid out. I thought this was pretty good. Um, And there may be some correlations between the signs that are performed and the discourses that Jesus gives. And I haven't figured that all out. Um, Maybe there are people who who have a little bit more than me, um, I think that's great. But God can, can still use me in my limited understanding and take something and uh, grow that in all of us. Uh, because that is my prayer. I take very seriously what I try to bring in this sermon uh, to you guys. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit can take from what I have been given And take these words and use them in a way that you create more room in your heart for the Spirit himself. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's why our fellowship together, it's so crucial. There's a lot of life in this building today, and I'm so thankful for that. But as we have fellowship with each other, as some of our rough edges get, you know, worn down a little bit, as we build relationships that become increasingly meaningful and important to us, uh, as we hear uh, the teaching and words of class, all of these things, our sharing and participating in the Lord's Supper, our being able to express our gratitude through giving, all of these things tie us together. And so our desire is that we can be a place that is safe, for other people to come and experience what the love of Jesus Christ is truly like. And the church 
is supposed to be that agency on this earth that loves well and shows people what Jesus is like and points people into a relationship with the Lord. So uh, this first half of John's gospel is, is dominated by these signs and discourses. And after this, just kind of a heads up, you think about this like as a timeline of Jesus's life, the first half of the book is kind of a wide angle lens taking in a probably quite a bit longer uh, amount of time. Whereas the second half, they change the lens out from the wide angle to the zoom. And time slows way down. The second half of the book happens in just little over a week, a week's time. And it's all about uh, leading up to Jesus' death, uh, his crucifixion, and then resurrection. So let me say a word about our narrative today from John chapter 7, 53 and following. If you notice in your Bible, if you turn there, a lot of times these verses are bracketed off in some way. Um, and I don't usually bother with textual variations and issues in my preaching or my sermon, but today's text is rather unique and many Bibles will have John... 7:53 through 8:11 as as somehow set apart that it came to the letter of John somehow differently many scholars believe that this material was not a part of the original writing of John uh, and this section has numerous expressions and constructions in it in Greek that are not found anywhere else in John but are more characteristic of what we find in Luke's gospel particularly the Gospels were written using common source material. Some of you may have heard of the designation of the source Q, you know, as you've kind of been around the, uh, these teaching in the church. Q is a common source that was used by the authors of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what I think what is included here is early source material that was added to John's Gospel. Some early manuscripts actually have this narrative as a part of Luke, and some have it in other parts of John. It's also in John, but in a different placement. But let me say that even though this narrative comes to us in a more roundabout way, there's no reason to doubt the events described here. For my part, I believe that this story is true, that God intended for us to know it, and there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from it. You see, God could have dropped the Bible out of the sky if he wanted us to have it that way. But instead, he chose to work through people by means of inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that the Spirit worked through the authors of Scripture. He worked through the editors. He works through the scribes. He worked through church councils translators every time this this message is translated into a different language and even you and I if we approach the texts of scripture with humility the Holy Spirit works there as well so the Bible we have is the Bible that God intended for us and let me just say this is the Bible that we need a lot of people will try to uh, dismiss certain sections. I don't like Paul. Paul's, the thing he says about this or that, I don't like that. 
Or, oh, I'll take this as the red letter. I'll listen to these words, but not... I don't like this portrayal of what's going on here in the Old Testament. That is not politically correct at all. And it's a slippery slope when we begin to pick and choose and try to push certain things aside and only cling to certain things. You see, the Bible is not just some book alongside other books. It does not sit equal with other texts that are written. Great literature of the English language, maybe Shakespeare, uh, it's, it does not sit equal with the Book of Mormon, with the Bhagavad Gita, with the Koran. I believe that the Holy Spirit uses Scripture in the Bible in a unique way. Jesus says, I am the living word. He is the logos. And that word is something special. So the Bible is true. It's infallible. Depend on it. Live it. Obey it. You know, you might buck against that a little bit. But we all have to stand on something. So many of us are adrift because we say, well, these people say this, but these people say this, and I'll pick and choose this or whatnot. And so many people in this world are suffering because they don't have an anchor anywhere. The Bible was given to us as a place to anchor to, as something to hold on to. And if we have the humility to accept the Word of God in a way like that, as we learn humble submission to that word and obeying it, we will discover how the word of God is living and dynamic and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And you will discover the intent of the Bible, which is a real, dynamic, living relationship with your Creator. So I think the narrative placement here in John was to provide an illustration of what Jesus is talking about in John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. You remember we read that a uh, uh, couple weeks ago? Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. Or John 8, 15, we will find out in a minute, says... You judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. So let's jump into our text, starting in 753. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's a short little kind of almost throwaway sentence, you would think. But I think there are even lessons in short little verses like this, questions that we can ask. Why did Jesus not go to a home? When you get tired, where do you go? What do you do to unwind from your day? Who are the people that are surrounding you when you're tired at the end of the day? 
What do you do with that little window of time, that precious time to some of us, that time to be selfish some, for some of us, and we need that sometimes. What do you do with that little precious window of time at the end of the day between finishing work and going to sleep? Or that even more precious window if you're a parent between when the kids go to bed and when you go to bed. That's, that's, a, that's a kind of compressed little window of time sometimes. And it's precious. What do you do in that time? In the hidden music of John's gospel, I don't think this is a throwaway verse. Why didn't Jesus have a home to go to? If Jesus wanted to go to a home, he could have gone to a home. Don't you think that someone would have invited him into their home, a prominent rabbi and teacher like that? And we know he stayed in Bethany, which was a little ways away. I think of that verse that says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, he has no place to lay his head from Matthew's gospel. And again, I think maybe even in this little text here, Jesus is modeling something for us. His priority, remember, is to do the work of his Father who sent him. Everything comes back to that. Jesus, we've already heard him say that he has food to eat that you know nothing about to his disciples. He's already talked to this Samaritan woman at the well about what living water is, that he has living water. So people who are hungry and people who thirst. And so something about what's going on in Jesus' life right now is teaching us that there's, there's something more important than, than a good night's sleep for Jesus. The priority of God's mission even takes place over precedence over Jesus' need for comfort or for shelter. And for, in fact, Jesus spends the night out on the, his spending the night out on the Mount of Olives is more important than finding a home with a soft bed, with a pillow. I don't even know if they use pillows, probably not. So, so the question is then, what do we need to survive? Well, we do need certain things to survive, but also, why does Jesus set that aside? Because there may be something bigger going on here, something more important going on here. It's kind of funny, the things that come on your Facebook feed. Uh, This came recently, too, and so I'm talking about these things. Science says that we need four basic elements to survive. Water, air, food, light. And look what the Bible tells us about Jesus. I am the living water. I am the breath of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Science was right. We need Jesus to live. So I thought that's kind of humorous, but a little... A little cheeky, too. What I don't like is sometimes we tend to pit science against faith um, as if they're two separate and different things. Let me just say, the best science, it's not opposed to our faith. When science steps out of, you know, the, the noticing of, of differences and different results, and it begins to make existential claims like, to purpose and intent, that's when science will get in trouble. Faith gets in trouble when we begin to just agree that, yeah, this is separate. 
No, the best science, the way that this universe is so intricately created and designed, it points to a bigger reality. It points to why is this here? Why do I perceive this as good? Why am I here at all? Those are the questions, you know, that are bigger than... So this, this high, whole idea of, uh, I have science. No, well, I have faith. And that kind of divide, it's artificial. It's made up. Uh, some of the most godly people I know are nuclear physicists and rocket scientists and people who are a lot smarter than I am. And... Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. So anyway, I don't like that, that sometimes we divide science from faith like that. And it also bothered me a little bit too. Number two at the bottom, I am the breath of life. Jesus didn't actually say, I am the breath of life. They're referring to, I think, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God breathes into Adam. And suddenly this thing that was made from dust and earth comes to life and that breath when it enters is alive and it also might hearken to uh, in John chapter 20 when Jesus <sighs> breathes on the disciples and says receive the Holy Spirit they begin to open up to the events that are coming at Pentecost that breath of life that makes all things new so water air food light the light of the sun. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. They made her stand before the group. So what's going on here is these guys we know are setting a trap. They don't really have any particular care or concern for this woman. They didn't even really care about this woman's sin other than that they knew she was guilty. Serving justice was not their concern. They only want to destroy Jesus. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. That's interesting. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are referring to a command found in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus 20 that recommended stoning in, uh, for such cases. And this woman was scared. The possibility of stoning is a horrible, ugly thing. Um, I've actually witnessed a stoning, and it's not something I would want anyone to see. Uh, I was coming back from a village visit late one night in Tanzania, and as I went off the top of this hill down to the bottom of this valley where there were just rice paddies on either side of the road, I noticed this big group of people gathered and this commotion going. And I pulled over the vehicle, um, and I, I got out, and I went up to, I mean, I, just one of those reactions I wasn't even thinking, because I couldn't even interpret really what was happening in front of me. 
that there was a man on the ground and he was being crushed by all, uh, there must have been 20 people there throwing stones at him anywhere from about the size of my fist to big boulders that they were coming up and just putting like down on him about you know about the size of difficult to lift above your head but they were and this guy was down on the ground and he was about done and I jumped in there and I said stop it now stop now and they were startled enough by me running up there and standing over the man that they began to explain what was going on there was another man that was on the ground as well apparently they had had an argument and this guy when he was upset with the argument stabbed the other guy uh, in the eye socket and was so ups the people when they saw this guy stabbed this other guy were so upset that they started stoning this guy and I said, well, this isn't the way to sort this out. We need to go get help and treatment for these people now. So they, I pick up this guy's broken body, <laughs> stick it in the back of the car, and this other guy had been stabbed. I put him in the car. There's, it was messy. And the first thing we had to do, we had to come to a police checkpoint and a police station on the way into the hospital. And as the police stopped the car, they try, we tried to explain this situation and what was going on, and they passed judgment on, oh, this guy did this. Well, he's getting what he deserves, and they would not let me continue on with the guy who, was being, who had been stoned. And they brought him into the police station, and they said, well, I've got, we, I have got to take this guy to the hospital. He's in bad shape. They didn't care at all. And they said, no, you leave now. You know, and they're sitting there with AK-47. So, I mean, how much do you argue with the, the authority in that, that state? But they didn't care about, you know, the condition that this man was in. But I continued. I was able to take the guy who had been stabbed to the hospital. And uh, bizarre, bizarre incident. So when it's talking about this woman under the threat of being stoned, it's a horrible thing. And she, is, she had to have been scared. They force her to stand up in front of Jesus. She's been, it's bad enough having sin pointed out to be caught in the act of something. That's bad enough. But then to have the public ridicule and the threat of your life on top of that. Here is the condition of this woman as she's made to stand in front of Jesus. But Jesus reads the situation. He doesn't bite. He has no interest in playing their game on their terms. So I just imagine what it would look like as he just kind of... starts scratching something on the ground kind of almost at first glance can seem like childlike behavior you know less like I've always wondered what it is though that Jesus was writing on the ground in this text it might have been significant we don't know this the, the Bible doesn't tell us I kind of like to think that he was writing the names of all of these Pharisees and then putting a list of their sins next to him this is John he is a liar. He is a thief. He stole such and such from... So we don't know what Jesus was, was writing. 
But the, the, the true irony here is it's not Jesus' response that's the childlike, childish behavior, but the religious leaders uh, who are so willing to condemn and so blind to this other, the value of the life of this other person that they're willing to treat this woman just as a pawn, someone who is disposable, unimportant, and they're doing it to fulfill an agenda that they have against Jesus. So he's writing on the ground, it says. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What do you do when you are getting ready to spring a trap and then the Lord reveals a memory of your own brokenness and guilt? I can imagine that would be frustrating. You know, we do this too. We've all built our case against someone, against some neighbor. Oh, this guy living in that house, they do this. He let his dog just loose and this dog whatever dogs do. This co-worker of mine, this, we all have people that we have made judgments on and we have a list and we keep track of that list. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, we hold dear that list of our grievances sometimes. But once in a while, the ugliness of our own behavior is revealed to us. And it's a challenging thing. Well, when Jesus points this out, I wonder how long that pause was. I wonder how long it took for them to think about these memories and these images of their own sin before stones started to fall from their grasp. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Why do you think it is it was the older ones who left first? Hey, more lived life history. Maybe they have a longer list of sins to remember from. Usually, in a normal life, as we grow in a process of sanctification and becoming more like Jesus, we become more self-aware. Wisdom grows over time. So these men, they come to Jesus with an agenda and are blind to their own brokenness and sinfulness. But through Jesus' words, possibly through what he was writing on the ground, each of them begins to see a picture of their own sin. And this memory of their own sin is powerful enough that their whole agenda of what they're trying to do with Jesus just falls apart and the stones begin to fall out of their hands. The older ones first. And then the younger men who are there. I think younger men sometimes we would say are more rash. They're more zealous hot-headed sometimes, a younger man. When they see their elders 
drop their stones and refuse to attack. It unnerves them as well. It unnerves them enough that even the young hotheads begin to see a picture of their own sinfulness until finally no one is left but Jesus and this woman. So in this short little story, we discover that there are three trials taking place. The trial of this woman. She was caught doing this. Moses, the law of Moses says that she should be treated this way. The trial of this woman was really only a pretext or a pretense for the trial of Jesus. See, the honest truth is these leaders did not know what to do with Jesus. He was threatening everything. His sway with the people, it was threatening to him, to them. And so this is all Jesus on trial, really, not this woman. Trying to find a basis to accuse him, to get dirt. They set it up perfectly, this trap. But Jesus... He turns the whole table around. I mean, he turns the tables. The whole thing's flipped on its ear. The trial of the accusers is really what's going on. People who were blind to their own sin. They were so afraid of Jesus that they cook up this whole scene scheme. They're afraid of losing control. But I think in the hidden music of John's gospel, there's also a, a fourth trial taking place as well. There's also the trial of the person who reads this story. See, one of the, the ways that narrative works is it invites us in uh, to identify with the characters in the story. No doubt we tend to gravitate to those characters in the story that are most attractive. And we identify most fully with the people who are the heroes of this text. And as we grow, we begin to see common things with other people in the story as well. And as we grow in faith and by the grace of God, we also can realize the times that maybe I was the one holding a stone. That I was ready to fight against so-and-so. Brother so-and-so who did such and such X, and X amount of years ago, I was ready to fight that fight again if I needed to. And yet something has happened and I realize, yeah, I'm holding a stone too. We pretend to have justifiable reasons to push Jesus aside, to push other people aside. We build traps for people in our mind. We keep running lists of reasons in our minds against other people. And we do this because sometimes we're afraid. It's fear that lies beneath this. So a question for us becomes, who are you trying to control? Who is it that you have 
imaginary arguments with in your mind. You ever do that? I find myself doing that sometimes. I, I, I replay situations that have happened, and I think I'm always, I'm not slow in my wit, but I always can think of better comebacks later on because these conversations, they keep going in my mind. And I think, oh, I should have said that, or that would have been a really good zinger, or oh, that would have made me look really smart if I could have. We keep these lists. You know, I think the only hope that we have for healing in our relationships, for deep relationships even in this church, is that Jesus will come to us and show us how wretched we are. Jesus will show you and he will show me how broken and needy we are so that we can let go of the stones we have pointed at other people. So there's the fear of these people who don't know what to do with Jesus and are trying to catch him. There's also the fear of this woman frightened for her life already shamed publicly. And if you've been caught in, in a way like that is, is publicly shaming, don't give up hope. See, Jesus' desire is not to condemn, but to set you free. And when you know that kind of love of God, it changes everything. So this trial that's going on, us and the baggage we bring as we hear this story. This woman who's caught in public shame. These people who were ready to do evil justifiably. They're all afraid. The only one who's not afraid is Jesus. Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not afraid. Because his love for the Father is perfect. His eyes are always fixed on God the Father. And we know that perfect love drives out fear. And everywhere that the perfect love of Jesus goes, fear is undone and the result is freedom. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. I, just, I can't, she's probably just, I can't even imagine what her emotions would have been. No one, no one's, they're not here to accuse me anymore. That realization that I might be able to get out of this. And then Jesus says, And neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more.
You know, I, I, I thought about this a little bit. He says, I condemn no one. Later on, Jesus says in verse 15 of chapter 8 that I pass judgment on no one. But yet we've already read in John chapter 5 that it says these words, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. How do you reconcile those things? Jesus says, I judge no one, but yet all judgment, everyone will face Jesus Christ. We also know that condemnation is not the purpose of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. The purpose of Jesus is that we might find life, right? And I think why there is life, while there is life, there is hope. While there is breath in someone's lungs, there is hope for repentance. While there is breath in someone's lungs, there is hope for reconciliation. There is hope for restored relationships. So maybe a question that would be good for us to ask ourselves is, who, who have you passed judgment on? How many of us have parents or children or siblings or friends who functionally we've given up on them? We've tried to have conversations. We've tiptoed around these conversations. They've been so uncomfortable that we say things, well, they knew, they know how they were they know how they were raised the, or they know where I stand on this and it's been years since we've spoken to them about their need for a relationship with Jesus it's been years since we've talked about truly meaningful things with them how's it going with your soul sometimes it's hard and we make these little accommodations and we don't, we're afraid to make mistakes. And we've gotten comfortable with not saying anything to our coworkers or anything about need for a relationship with Jesus. We've gotten too comfortable. And I'm not saying don't be smart. And I'm not saying don't be careful. And I'm not saying don't be thoughtful. Direct confrontation isn't the only tool in our box. But do find a way. Find a way somehow to bring Jesus Christ back into the conversation. Because while there is breath, there is hope. While there is life, there is hope. Also notice that Jesus doesn't just ignore the sin and pretend that it doesn't matter. He says, move on and don't do that anymore. God's interest isn't to rub our noses in our failures. God does not want you to be crushed under the burden of your own shame. He wants to remove that from you. He wants to save us. He wants us to move on to better things. God does not say, if you change, I will love you. 
But in walking with God, if you walk with God long enough, you will discover that God loves you right where you are. His love for you was perfect yesterday. His love for you was perfect in your darkest moments, in your deepest secrets, in your darkest sins. It was perfect for you. His love for you in this moment, it's perfect. Every tomorrow that you are blessed to see, his love is already there and it's perfect. See, it's only the perfection of God's love that can help us undo the fear in our lives so that we are free to be changed, free to become something more than we are right now. And when the Holy Spirit, by His grace, shows us our sin, we begin to drop our stones. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. He doesn't condemn his accusers. And he doesn't condemn us. Because while there is life, there is hope. And each of us has our own inner struggles. Our our own ways that we fight against Jesus. Allowing the healing love of Jesus to penetrate the darkness of our hearts. But as that light begins to break in, a whole other level of a relationship with God is possible. As the light of Christ begins to shine in, a whole other level of relationships with people is possible. Because as the light shines in, We don't have to manage images. We can be more open and honest. We can love more freely. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. Forgiveness is possible. So, Jean Vanier, I always like what he has to say most of the time. I always like most of the time. Strange. The first three movements toward forgiveness, he says. The first step is to not seek revenge, to refuse to retaliate and fight evil with evil. Even just not not avenging. That's a step. Second step is to pray for those who have consciously or unconsciously hurt us. If you're in community with people, If you're in family with people, they will have hurt you. They probably will hurt you again. They may be aware of of it. They may not be aware of it. Inviting prayer into that, it changes the whole situation and changes the whole dynamic. The third step, understanding people who have hurt us. And sometimes we have to have wisdom in the way we apply this, for sure. But there's no one who hurts who has not been hurt as well. What are the fears driving them? How did these fears come about? Where were they deeply hurt in their life? You see, sin, it's cyclical. The people who are the abusers were the ones who were abused. 
I have recognized in my own life a legacy of anger. And from what my grandfather experienced to what my father experienced to what I've experienced has been a generational work that the Lord has done in each of our lives to take that away and heal that. Because there's also a cyclical effect to the righteousness of God. So these, I thought, were helpful. Everywhere that Jesus goes, fear, sin, evil, they're all undone. It's like turning a flashlight on in a dark room. Everywhere that the light reaches, darkness is forced to retreat. You ever think about that? If light is there, darkness has no choice. If light is there, darkness must retreat. And that's why Jesus now moves on to call himself the light of the world. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life that lives inside of us, that can't be switched off. Everywhere we take that light, where we allow the expression of that light, darkness is undone. Well, the light of Jesus comes to us in different ways and at different times. But that light changes us forever. And it makes everything clear. So one last story and we'll be done. Some of you recognize this man. Some older people might think, ah, vaguely familiar. It's a Swedish ambassador. I don't even know how to say his, his name correctly. Dag Hammerhold was a celebrated 20th century diplomat and served as the Secretary General of the United Nations from 1953 to 1961. In 1961, his plane crashed in the Congo under mysterious circumstances on his way to ceasefire negotiations. There was some question as to that. Some of you who have a longer memory that goes back further may remember some little bits of that. Some people may remember something of this man in his life. Uh, being the second and one of the most celebrated secretary generals of the United Nations. But a lot of people, maybe uh, who knew him in this way, did not also know about his conversion to Jesus Christ and to Christianity and his deep abiding faith in the Lord. For Dag, his night lasted for many years. He wrote about three years of intense darkness, depression, And many years before that, that were without the light of the world in his life. When he wrote about the darkness, he said, he described it as anguish, silent inner turmoil. Until at last, at some moment, I did answer yes to someone or something. And from that hour, 
I was certain that existence is meaningful and that therefore my life in self-surrender had a goal. And later when writing about this light of the world who had found him in his own personal darkness, he said, since that time, for me all has been thanks for all that shall come or that all that shall be, yes. As you invite the light of the world into your life, through the miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we claim our identity. We claim our identity as the light of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus doesn't say, you will become the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. And so we can't be afraid to let that light shine because we have been created in the image of God who is a good God. We are the children of light. Goodness draws us in a way that evil never can. Virtue draws us in a way that vice never will. Your nature is to be a child of the light. You were created for goodness. Because of what Jesus did, coming as our light of the light of the world. The switch in this world was flipped on. And everything became known. Everything that was hidden is disclosed. Just like a dark room. The lights come on. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, which is recorded also in Matthew The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's how great a Savior we serve. That He comes to us and shines His light everywhere in our hearts and our lives and invites us to do that for each other as well and for others. So whatever your needs are, for this light to come shine in into some little dark corner, whatever it is, to commit your life to Christ, to put him on in baptism, whatever your needs are, you have an opportunity to express that and come forward and tell me about that as we stand and sing together.